0: Hey everyone, this is Kevin and Sarah Hale, and uh, this is Vegan Theology, episode seven. How's
1: Welcome, everybody.
0: Yeah. How's it going, Sarah?
1: It's going awesome. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited for our topic as always. Yeah, and uh, get the ball rolling on our our quest to say something meaningful about God and. That's a phrase that uh, I'm taking from Middleton, which we'll be referencing Middleton, um, J. Richard Middleton, a lot today. and I like how he says theology is our attempt to say something meaningful about God and God's intents. As you know, if you've been listening, we have been methodically, systematically attempting to lay out a theological framework, a foundation upon which we can build as we move forward with this podcast. And so we've been talking a lot about the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2, and last week we expanded it into talking about the new creation, so the two bookends, the original creation, the good creation that God reveals in in the book of Genesis, and bookended ended by God's ultimate intents and desires and longing for creation, the redemption of creation. Right. And so we're still in that vein right now. We're, we're still wanting to explore that more and a little deeper and get into, if that's true, if, if the most biblical, the most faithful reading of God's purposes and our future is the new creation, the redeemed creation, then what does that mean? Right. And how did we end up with the popular theology, the popular eschatology, that is that we're going to escape this world and we're going to go into a a heavenly place for eternity? Right. Because as we'll uncover, more and more theologians are realizing that that is not the faithful biblical reading and that actually what the Bible talks about is redeeming this creation.
0: Right. And there are several verses that we can talk about that speak to the renewal or the regeneration of the current creation of the heaven and earth that God already created.
1: hmm Again, I'm just thinking about something Middleton says, that the theology that we're putting forth here takes seriously that God meant it when he said that this creation is very good. Right. And so the idea being that if God considers this creation very good, God is not going to just junk it. Right. Which is our popular understanding.
0: Right. Yeah, I think he made a reference in one of the things we're watching is God doesn't make junk And then God also doesn't junk what he makes. So that was a nice little addition that he threw in there.
1: So interestingly, I I was on social media this week, and I happened to see a little comedic video put out, I think, originally on TikTok, but I saw it on Instagram by a gentleman who uh, was talking about kind of what we're talking about (laughs) in a comedic way it's just a few minutes long and i I thought maybe it would be fun just to play it and then we can discuss it
2: yeah sure let's give it a shot oh Oh, there are still people left alive okay this is gonna sound really weird but what year is this it's 2073 the time machine worked it's been 50 years Are, are you alone or are there other survivors survivors yes Our climate was on the brink of collapse. Did humanity not get driven underground? I was sent here to salvage what I can and hopefully find a clue to avoid the inevitable annihilation that our scientists warned us about. Oh, right, that. Yeah, no, everything's good. In fact, better than good. Humanity's thriving. The global average temperature is 70 degrees. Everybody on Earth has access to food, fresh water, housing, education. We've all but eradicated disease, and you have to go back three generations to find anyone who remembers war. How is that even possible? Okay, you're not going to believe me, but turns out Jesus was real. And he came back. And he created this paradise on Earth? no. (laughs) No. Uh, He just took all the Christians with him. Yeah. The rapture happened and we got left behind. And without the Christians holding us back, we actually progressed as a society. (sighs) We'll all be damned. Technically, yes. All right.
1: There you have it.
0: (laughs) A little little critical, but... uh, Sure.
1: Sure. Of course. Uh, You know, it's... It's not as complex as we would like it to be in its criticism of the church, but I think there's some good points. There's some salient points that that we could discuss.
0: Right. Well, I also think it sounds like whoever created that, he might've had a good sense of theology in that God would redeem this world. He kind of spoke in those terms that, hey, who Mm -hmm. did this? Did God, did Christ do this? Yeah. So. Yeah. And it turns out that that, <laughs> that is what is supposed to happen according to the biblical text.
1: That video, in my mind, points out two things that we need to address. Number one, this popular theology, the popular eschatology. So again, eschaton just means end things or last things. Last things. Thank you. So this popular eschatology within the church that is alive and well and has been for centuries...
0: Yeah, decades, centuries, yeah.
1: um, ...is that there's a rapture, uh, which I don't even think that word actually appears in Scripture, the word rapture. Right. Uh, There's a rapture, and we escape. God comes and takes the church away, and everybody else is just left behind. So again, popularized by many things, including the left-behind Series, this rapture theology. So that's one thing that we're criticizing. But, you know, maybe even the bigger point in that video is the fact that many humans view Christians as, instead of being part of the solution to the world's problems, Mm -hmm. they are standing in the way to those solutions to the world's problems. And why is that? And that's, I think, I think that's the crux of what we really want to get to right. on this podcast: is that our eschatology greatly affects how we view God's creation, how we view our future, how we view our role, and how we show up in life, right. how we show up in this world. And if your theology is what is mainstream in the church, you're going to view this world as what has been explicitly said by many evangelists and preachers, which is that this world is worthless and it's going to burn. And the only thing we should care about is saving human souls. I was actually a little sad to find out. It was actually DL Moody, our, hmm. our, uh, cause we both graduated from Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Yeah. Decades ago. And, um,
0: not that many decades
1: ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did not realize that he was the one that popularized the idea of the life raft, Hmm. that the ship is going down. In other words, the world is going to be destroyed. And our only job is to get on that life raft and get as many other people on that life raft as possible to escape with us.
0: Yeah. And it's also interesting that, you know, he stated it as a word from the Lord that God had given him this revelation.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was an evangelist and, you know, using rapture theology was very compelling to his listeners that you need to be ready to meet God at any moment. You know, so he used it in his evangelism. Right. And it's understandable.
0: It is understandable. And it's also, I think it's also, we can get into it at some point, part of the problem with this popular eschatology, it's pervaded evangelism techniques It's also invaded worship services in church. If you're singing praise and worship songs in church and you're hearing bad theology, you know, ideas of escape from this earth or God is going to rescue you from this earth, these kinds of ideas, that's not good theology. That is not what the biblical text talks about. Those are Platonic ideas that have sort of pervaded, maybe invaded Christian theology. So
1: I I think ultimately our our desire in our own hearts and minds you and i as individuals but also for the church at large or definitely for our listeners you know we would love to catch a vision an inspirational vision of what would it look like if the church remembered our task our god-given task on this planet which is ruling creation the way god wants creation ruled, right. what would it look like if the church was leading the charge when it comes to culture change right. and political change and you know, caring for creation, all of creation, right. um, and making good changes? And I know we do do that to some extent. I'm not saying we don't. I know we do. But there's definitely this vein through our theology that that's a secondary role that we play.
0: Well, I think, too, like I think reading Middleton, I think one of the things I got out of it, because, you know, you you do teach at a Christian, a classical Christian school, and they're very big on changing culture. That's their focus, right?
1: That's their stated focus. That's
0: their stated focus is really, they really emphasize changing culture. And there is within... This whole plan of redemption you know Christians influencing culture and society and politics and all these things and there's less of an emphasis at least among conservative Christians in America they're, they're really not concerned about the material world as much as they are the cultural societal political realm and they've kind of written off the material they've written off animals they've written off the earth they've written off climate change and ecology and all these things but I mean that's 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 not being too harsh. I mean that, that, that is the reality. Mm -hmm. and it's been this way for decades.
1: Yeah. And going back to, if I could, what you were talking about with our hymns, our traditional hymns, as well as the more contemporary uh, worship music, is still very, very rife with these lyrics that talk about going home, leaving earth, meeting God on the celestial shore, things like this. Middleton has a section in his book, A New Heaven and a New Earth. And the section in the first chapter is called Singing Lies in Church. And he just points out that this is where we get our theology. This is is where we get our eschatology is through what we're singing in the pews. And Middleton quotes A.W. Tozer, who is reputed to have said, quote, Christians don't tell lies. They just go to church and sing them. Uh-huh. And Middleton says, you know, maybe that's uh, that's a little too harsh. But he does say a steady diet of such songs that we sing about heaven um, is certainly where this theology has taken root right. and has just pervaded our, our understanding of what's yeah. happening and what, our, th- what the goal is. Yeah, I
0: think he says something like, your typical lay person gets their theology. From but these- you know
1: what? Like He starts out the book saying that at the seminary where he teaches in New York, Northeastern, yeah. <laughs> he gives his students an assignment to interview a pastor, a church leader, or a missionary that they know, and ask them all kinds of questions about the Christian life and about their faith journey and about their theology. And and what's always revealed, even with these pastors and missionaries and church leaders, is this very Neoplatonic traditional view that the ultimate destination for every believer is life eternal life in heaven. Right. So it's not just the lay people. This is actually goes much deeper than that. Yeah. So yeah, let's just take a look at some of the hymns and worship songs that Middleton points out, but there are, you know, this is just a tiny slice of the sample that you know is out there. Right. Um, so from the classic Charles Wesley hymn quote Love divine all loves excelling it has the lyrics changed from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place even the you know the famous Christmas carol away in a manger which prays quote and fit us for heaven to live with thee there and then you know there's hymns such as when the roll is called up yonder Says, on that bright and cloudless morning when the dead in Christ shall rise and the glory of his res- resurrection share. So that's all solid, right? When his chosen ones shall gather to their home beyond the skies and the role is called up yonder, I'll be there. Yeah. Uh, some hymns even interpret resurrection without reference to the body at all, such as Must Jesus bear the cross alone? Which in one stanza, regards death as liberation, it says, Till death shall set me free, O resurrection day, when Christ the Lord from heaven comes down and bears my soul away. And then there's the hymn, When We All Get to Heaven, or the old rugged cross that ends with the words, Then he'll call me someday to my home far away where his glory forever I'll share. And the hymn, Just a Closer Walk with Thee, closes with the lines, when my feeble life is o'er, time for me will be no more. Guide me gently, safely o'er, to thy kingdom's shore, to thy shore. Uh, there's more, of course. A- come Christians join to sing, oh, on heaven's blissful shore, his goodness we'll adore, singing forevermore, alleluia, amen. Right. My Jesus, I love thee, declares, in mansions of glory and endless delight, I'll ever adore thee in heaven so bright. And yeah, we could go on and on and on. Like, yeah, he talks about how a lot of hymnals have removed the sixth verse of Amazing Grace, which says the earth will soon dissolve like snow. Um, But he says, sadly, Chris Tomlin's contemporary revision of this classic hymn known as Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone, reintroduces this very verse. Wow. And then I think about, you know, in my own church, we often sing some of like the old timey, kind of Appalachian-type hymns. <laughs> and and yeah, you know, we often sing things like, I'll fly away. Yeah, this is just taken as truth.
0: Right. And you know what's so funny? It just reminds me, because, you know, we care about good theology. And when you attempt to engage anyone in, say, a typical churchgoer, and they might not be as familiar with theology if you were to talk to them about these ideas they don't believe them because i think in their minds how could this whole culture this mm-hmm. christian culture this church culture be incorrect
1: it's very threatening like if you're going to take away my belief that i'm going to go up to heaven like what else is not true that right. i've always believed it's it's very it feels very unsettling and scary I'm, yeah i'm
0: sure it is threatening i'm sure it's threatening you thought you're going to leave this place and you're going to be go live in peace In some otherworldly place with God, turns out, yeah. I guess if you take that away, tell people that's not true. People have a serious—I'm sure it's—it's maybe even a crisis of faith,
1: right? And they don't want to go there. And so I think that's why we want—we, our duty, is to replace that narrative with the rich biblical narrative, which is this amazing, miraculous idea that God is going to take the material world, and he's going to transform it into something that's incorruptible.
0: Right. Yeah, some verses, um, we talked about some of these verses last episode, and some of the verses in the New Testament that speak of a heaven and earth being regenerated or restored or reconciled are, for instance, in uh, Matthew 19.28, Jesus talks about the renewal of all things, Acts three twenty one. There's uh, the restoration of all things, and some say all things. You know, Paul when he uses the word, the Greek word panta, and it means all things, the heaven and earth that God created, that we know about from Genesis one, and then Colossians one twenty, reconcile all things to Himself. Ephesians 1:10 unify or bring together all things. And this is just really interesting. There are other verses that kind of get into this, and they you know they, they reference some of the verses we already mentioned in the last, last episode, you know, Revelation 21:1, some of the passages in Isaiah we talked about. But the idea is that God wants to reestablish flourishing and shalom or peace on earth, on the material earth that he created. And this was the idea in most or all of the Jewish thinking. I think, Sarah, there was a, maybe when we get to some of the later prophets, Ezekiel hmm. and things like, there. Yes. there is a slight change.
1: Yeah, yeah. So he, a lot of these scholars point out that, you know, the Old Testament audience really did not have a vision of an afterlife. They really believed that, God's salvation was here and now in the present, in God's good creation, that God would make things good for them here in this life. But they point out that towards the end of the Testament writing, um, with the prophets like Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Daniel, you start hearing from these prophets about eternal life and God swallowing up death forever. And but
0: it, but it's also immortality on Earth.
1: Yeah, it's like God is going to allow humans to rule the right way on, on Earth, this on this Earth forever Ruled for eternity. This yeah,
0: right. And and by the way, we just want to point out because you know we are called vegan theology that the transformation, the restoration, the reconciliation, the renewal of all things—that's humans, and that's the Earth. And that's animals. And that's also the order that God is trying to establish, a shalom or peace and flourishing for every creature. So that means that kind of what we've already talked about and kind of what the the foundation we're trying to build here is that we are caretakers and stewards and servant stewards and servant caretakers of this creation as God's representatives on earth. And that means that we're going to be ruling within a peaceful environment and we're to build culture and society and be creative. And what that implies then, right, is that animals are going to live in peace mm-hmm. and they're going to live the way God intended them to live and the way God created them to live. They're going to have a nice, peaceful, flourishing existence, thriving, and they're mm-hmm. not going to be ripped apart and
1: enslaved,
0: enslaved and slaughtered and sacrificed and all these things. That's just yeah. not going to happen.
1: Amen. So as I was doing some of this research i was struck by how unique this understanding is compared to the platonist obviously but even other traditions like you know the dharma traditions that think about reaching nirvana which again is like the immaterial ethereal right. they finally cast off all the corruptible about themselves hmm. through through their endless cycles of Reincarnation and burning off bad karma and stuff. I was just seeing how similar that worldview is to the Platonic worldview, which is again that the material is corruptible and valueless, and only the ethereal, the the intelligence, the read, the reason, the the logos of a person, the soul of a person will live on without the corruptible. Whereas this model is saying no. The material is sacred. The material is good. God loves the material, and God is going to redeem it. The project that was started in Genesis 1 and 2, the creation project, got derailed, but God has never given up on coming back to that project and redeeming creation. And so I really like what N.T. Wright, started to explain. Um, I haven't fully explored it to the, to, in all of its intricacy, but right. he says that it is in the, resur- the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ that we have the model as well as the means of what God is going to do with all of creation. Wow. So again, Jesus did not come back in some ethereal, celestial body that's Jesus, or, or even just as spirit, right? Invisible spirit. Like Jesus came back in his body, but somehow it was transformed. So again, there's a lot to unpack there for sure. For sure, yeah. To explore there. But but yeah, the, I love the beautiful, it resonates as true that we have in the resurrection of Jesus, we have the, me, the model as well as the means of what God wants to do with all of creation.
0: Right. Fascinating.
1: So just a broad, high level vantage point history of this theology how we got here basically and of course with any history there's of course a lot that's going to be left out right but i think it's still worthwhile to trace just the high points through history of right this. and
0: you can always read more about this there are books there are other christian theologians and historians that that have written about the greek influence on our theology hmm. so this isn't just one person's idea this is becoming way more prevalent. More and more people are writing about this. Mm.
1: So Middleton does give us just a, a historical overview. And of course, beginning with the Greek philosopher Plato, uh, who was alive in the late 5th and early 4th centuries BC, and who really pushed like a dualistic worldview in which there's the immortal soul or mind, which is what he considered the true self, and then the transitory, corruptible body. Right. And this just was very prevalent through his time. And the Platonic worldview was kind of given impetus a few centuries later, in the 3rd century AD, by the Greek philosopher Plotinus. Mm-hmm. And Plotinus greatly, deeply influenced Augustine. Plotinus's thought was kind of called Neoplatonism, where, again, the idea of the mind or the noose, I think N-O-U-S in the, is the Greek word for the spirit or the logos, which really started off the Western stream of mysticism, which is still prevalent today. So Augustine Ambrose viewed the church as engaged in a pilgrimage through this world and which it was in significant conflict throughout history and which clearly was not its homeland. I think Augustine really lived in turbulent times Mm. and it was and I think this is what happens to a lot of us when we see the problem of evil, when we see the devastation and the and the wickedness around us, I think it does lend us to feel like this is irredeemable and we need to escape this, right? So because of this turbulent times, he definitely thought that this was not our homeland. And maybe now is the goodest time as any to talk about the citizenship passage sure. of the Bible because yeah. a lot there is a passage in the Bible that says that our citizenship is in heaven, right? Yeah. But NT Wright and other scholars are pointing out, okay, the way the New Testament audience would have heard that was in the context of Roman citizenship. So Rome had all these colonies around the empire. Right. And your citizenship was still Rome. You were a citizen a citizen of Rome, but it was never like expected that you would come back to Rome. In fact, that is the opposite of what Rome wanted. Rome itself was overcrowded and under-resourced, and they did not want people coming back to Rome. So they wanted even like their retired soldiers, they did not want them coming back. They wanted them to be in these colonies spreading Roman culture, Roman civilization to the rest of the world. Right. So that's how the New Testament readers would have understood our citizenship is in heaven.
0: Right, and this was in Philippians. This was uh, Philippians 3.20. So Paul's letter to Philippi, and they were Roman citizens. Like you said, there was no idea in their mind that they were going to go to Rome.
1: Yeah. So think of, hold that up against our, our traditional popular understanding of that passage, which is, oh, our citizenship is in heaven. That's our home. We're going there. No, that's not how it was written or intended to be understood, we are here almost like colonists of heaven, Mm. spreading the culture of God's kingdom here on earth. Right. So yeah, Middleton just kind of goes through the history from Augustine to Ambrose. Of course, Origen was very much a a Neoplatonist in his understanding of heaven. And so he writes in Augustine's eschatology there is simply no redemption of the cosmos. The final redemption is a cosmic and a temporal. So very much away from this place. Right.
0: Not not historical, not within human history and not in the material world.
1: And then Middleton just says, you know, once the holistic vision of the world as God's good creation was lost, it took a long time for it to ever reappear in church right. theology. Well, and it's
0: just it's just crazy how big Augustine is in church history. He mm-hmm. was one of the church fathers. I mean, even today, many many good old Reformed theologians they love Augustine. Yeah. You know, and I mean, obviously
1: he but. had a lot to offer for sure. And then Middleton traces through the Middle Ages, namely Aquinas. So same Neoplatonic understanding of our final destination. And then Middleton takes us right up to the Reformation with Luther and Calvin, who believe that the final state is heaven. Uh, He writes, Calvin has no place in his theology for the redemption of the social order or the physical cosmos. Again, this idea that we're just on a pilgrimage through this place to get to our homeland. One shining example of a... alternative view or maybe a more (laughs) biblical view in history are the seventh day adventists so they believed in a renewed and restored earth even a renewed cosmos cleansed of all evil so a quote by ellen g white she wrote the entire universe is clean one pulse of harmony and gladness beats through the vast creation from him who created all flow life and light and gladness throughout the realms of illimitable space. From the minutest atom to the greatest world, all things animate and inanimate in their unshadowed beauty and perfect joy declare that God is love. Wow. So beautiful. And I mean, let's go ahead and just mention that because... Still to this day, at least 40% I read of Seventh-day Adventists are vegan or vegetarian. So again, this theology has an effect on how we show up in the world. Right.
0: Well, and their their big uh, center in, I think, Los Angeles or somewhere in Southern California is one of the blue zones that that book talks about. It's one, of the, it's one of the areas where um, it's the, kind of, I want to say, the most healthy place to live. They're where like,
1: people live the longest. Where people
0: live the longest. And the
1: happiest, yeah.
0: Yeah, healthy lives. So they're one of the, I think, seven blue zones. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: So awesome. And then the historical overview hits uh, the 19th century where we get rapture doctrine and dispensationalism. There's a derogatory term for this kind of theology, which is newspaper exegesis. <laughs> so there's a deep pessimism in this way of thinking about the present world. And this this is kind of troubling, right? Hmm. The, and this is what I was raised in, probably you too, right. Kevin, yep. is that this world is going to get worse and worse and worse until God, Jesus comes back and annihilates it. Right. And so... You almost, in a really sick way, I'm going to go ahead and use that adjective, in a really almost sick way, you actually want the world to get worse. Hmm. There's actually um, a little bit of joy you get as you watch the world get worse, because the worse the world gets, the sooner Jesus is going to come back for us. Wow. Right? In fact, uh, people are saying that. I mean, I I know podcasts live on forever, so current events are something that we can't refer to but no matter what when you listen to this podcast if you open up the newspaper you're going to find horror right currently there's another horrible war going on in Israel Palestine and you know i've i've heard that people are like you know the really sick thing is that there are a bunch of christians who want this to happen wow. because the more this kind of thing happens the sooner jesus is going to come back that's crazy so again when when you believe that way are you going to be motivated to go out and make change or stand up against hmm. corruption right. or, you know, start a grassroots movement to make the quality of life better for the poor or, or yeah. improve education? or?
0: Well, I think this plays into it, let's be honest. I mean, we went to Moody Bible Institute. It's a well, we were there at least. It's a dispensational school. And I will say there was a difference between the theology department and the Bible department, but the theology department was very dispensational. Mm. And we all took systematic theology, several classes of systematic theology, from these dispensational theologians. Our theology was very dispensational. We grew up, we were raised, we were... Weaned. Weaned, however you want to say it, in dispensational theology. And it is very... Focused on certain things happening before Christ comes back, and yeah. and my point my point in saying that is that why bother trying to make things better if certain things haven't happened historically? Like for instance, <laughs> the the Jewish temple being restored, many dispensationalists would believe that Christ can't come back until that's in place. If that's not in place, then what 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 are we waiting for? Why why bother doing anything? Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah,
0: I mean that's just one example. There are many, but and so this gets into this idea that we're leaving this place. There's no point in redeeming it. And then when we see things, however want to say it, go to hell, that's another indication that, you know, that's going to bring Christ back sooner.
1: And we could just wash our hands of whatever's going yeah, on. Yeah,
0: we have no responsibility, yet, yet we do.
1: So then, you know, next in line historically are the revivalists, which we've already mentioned, D.L. Moody, who in 1877- said, I look on this world as a wrecked vessel. God has given me a lifeboat and said to me, Moody, save all you can. Middleton contrasts this Moody quote with a quote by Abraham Kuyper, who just three years later in 1880 had a very different idea. His quote is, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign Lord of all, does not cry mine. So, you know, the point being, if you if you view the world as a wrecked vessel that we need to escape from, or you view the world as God's good creation, which even in spite of all its brokenness belongs to Christ, which he's never given up on, and he wants to redeem, and that God wants to dwell with us on this earth, he wants to he wants us to live in such a way that he can dwell in our midst. You know, so those are very different visions of what is going on. And w- depending on which one you really h- put your hope in, your life is going to look radically different. Right. Oh, which I forgot a- to mention one thing. He, he does mention the Schofield Reference Bible coming out This edition of the King James Version gave canonical status to the dispensational interpretations of Bible prophecy and the preferred eschatological framework to North American evangelicals and fundamentalists. Hmm. And then, of course, we have books like the Late Great Planet Earth and the Left Behind series. And he says that most evangelicals today are dispensationalists by osmosis. We've absorbed this rapture. Theology. It's in the culture. Hmm.
0: Yes. Yeah. I think those, uh, those left behind books, pretty popular books, right? Cause they made movies out of them too, right? Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: A lot of people, um, I think, I think her name's Caitlin Schess on the Holy Post has published a book on rapture theology or she's researching a book on rapture theology because hmm. certain people of her generation are saying, I was traumatized by this rapture oh, theology. Wow. And Interesting. yeah. Yeah. So Francis Schaeffer, the American missionary who founded Libri in Switzerland in the 1960s, was influenced where he went to school in Amsterdam. And he always affirmed the hope of a renewed cosmos as center to his eschatology. He declared that Christ's death will redeem all nature at the time when we are raised from the dead. So he's a bright light as well in in this kind of theology. Middleton also quotes a gentleman named Herman Bavink from 1854 to 1921, who was a a theologian, and he had a beautiful, coherent vision of the redemption of creation. According to Bavink, God's honor consists precisely in the fact that he redeems and renews the same humanity, the same world, the same heaven, and the same earth that have been corrupted and polluted by sin. I like that he says God's honor consists Hmm. in that he's going to redeem his creation. Wow. Right? Like, it's God's character. Right. He's going to finish what he started.
0: Right, and I think this is some of the ideas that we've used, right? And this is, I think, an idea that uh, Middleton uses. He talks about holistic salvation, holistic salvation, and this consistency and this logical follow-through, you know, and I think that's, if you were to think about the character of God, right, like, you, like we said, Genesis 1, he said the creation was good, very good, and he's going to fulfill it. And he made promises that he's going to fulfill. He's not going to recreate
1: mm-hmm. everything. Right. And then Middleton raises the names of several contemporary theologians. We've already named um, N.T. Wright. Mm. but also Tim Keller, yeah. who's writing um, along these lines. N.T. Wright, I really liked um, when he was talking about hymns and worship songs and how they talk about heaven, how we need to change what we're singing right. in our worship. He said that when he was bishop or as bishop of the Church of England, right. he, got, he got to change the words to some songs. And he, he gave the example of um, he changed the words in How Great Thou Art when... I think it's the third verse, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. So N.T. Wright had them sing instead, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and heal the world, what joy shall fill my heart.
0: Wow, that's pretty funny. One thing too, he also made a joke. You know, you know, many many musicians in the church, right? They'll change the key or they'll change the timing of a song. He's like, sure. well, while you're at it, why don't you change the words?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So one thing I'd, I'd like to also mention, you know, Middleton says it's it's kind of a chicken or the egg scenario. Like, was it the Platonic way of thinking that came first, or was it just human selfishness and greed that came first? Mm because they kind of are married to each other in terms of not taking care of creation, in terms of raping creation for resources and treating animals the way we treat animals and, you know, waging war to acquire whatever. You know, like, was it is it human greed? Capitalism gone awry or, or whatever economic system gone awry? Or is it is that fueled by Platonism? Or is Platonism kind of... M- accepted and adhered to because of our greed and our selfishness. Yeah.
0: Well, I think something else that comes to mind that he mentions is that, like we've talked about, the platonic view is that the material world is evil or not good, despicable, and that the spiritual mind, rational soul is good and all good. And so we have to separate those things. But what's interesting to me in what he was saying in this historical account. And again, we did a very high level Mm -hmm. summary. There's a lot more detail to be read and discovered by you, if you would like to. But one of the things that I thought was very interesting is Christians in their theology, in the theology of the church have done away with the earth, like the, 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 the renewal of the, or the resurrection, however you want to say it, of the earth and the material world, but they haven't done away with, the resurrection of their body right so there's there is a disconnect there Like yeah. they've held on to the resurrection of the body that's somehow going to ascend to heaven and live in a immaterial world but they they're not consistent they didn't follow through yeah. with the resurrection of the renewal the restoration of the, the, the of the entire world and animals and everything else the so, material
1: the physical yeah yeah
0: so it's interesting it is that we've done that
1: for sure yeah, it's it's almost like we haven't really hammered it out, and we just have these half-formed ideas yeah. carry it through. And it, it seems so often the only time we really talk about heaven is at a funeral, and we really are very uncomfortable talking about hell. And I just think it's so interesting. Like we hang on to these doctrines, but we really haven't thought them through. They're very uncomfortable to think through in some ways.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned one of those historical church fathers kind of was the first to bring out kind of a Christian mysticism that might still pervade the church. And I wonder if it has infected the Christian mind in the sense that we, you know, well, we we can't know. So why bother Mm. attempting to know?
1: Mm.
0: You know, even when it comes to reading apocryphal literature like Daniel, part of Daniel and Revelation, like, well, we can't know. So let's just wait and see what God does.
1: Yeah. And I think that people like Tim Keller and T Wright Middleton they're kind of they're not kind of they are saying this half-baked half-thought through just traditionally pop popularly accepted idea of heaven and hell have not served us it's right. not served the world and we can do better
0: and and we're not as a church we're not doing our jobs which we're going to get into in the next episode yeah. in more detail
1: yeah I'd like to close my part of this podcast today with um, just reading from the end of the appendix in Middleton's book. Again, that's titled A New Heaven and a New Earth. Uh, There is, of course, no guarantee that this shift in theology will be complete in our lifetime. However, given the consistent biblical vision of God's intent to redeem creation and the Church's checkered history on this point, I believe that the time is ripe for the contemporary Christians to engage in serious reflection on the shape of our eschatology. This eschatology must be grounded firmly in the entire biblical story, beginning with God's original intent for earthly flourishing and culminating in God's redemptive purpose of restoring earthly life to what it was meant to be—a purpose accomplished through Christ— We especially need to grapple with the robust ethical implications of this biblical eschatology, exploring how holistic vision of the future can motivate and ground compassionate, yet bold, redemptive living in God's world.
0: Wow. Nice quote.
1: And that's where we're going, as you said, next, is the already, not yet, and what our role is now. Correct.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for listening. And again, I know we are, uh, we call ourselves vegan theology, and that is our goal. And I think what we're still trying to do is we're trying to build this framework, or this platform, this foundation to hang our or build our vegan theology on. And I think if you're following along, you can appreciate what we're trying to do that God wants us, and He established a peaceful, orderly, environment. And he wants us to maintain that. And that includes living in peace with, with the earth, with each other, with the animals and all of these things that we'll, you know, we've talked about, we'll get into, but I just want to, you know, say that, that we haven't forgotten, (laughs) we haven't forgotten who we are. So
1: yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're clearly taking our time. We are. And
0: there's a lot here. And and I feel like even even though it's, it might seem like we're taking our time, I feel like we're also skimming. There's a lot I know. of detail.
1: I know. But yeah, I think when you're trying to reform your theological thinking, it takes more than one iteration. Yeah. And we're kind of just wading into this water and just trying to like soak in it um, and allowing it to start to be absorbed.
0: Right. Yeah. You can always reach out to us too if uh, some of the ideas we presented um, are new or controversial, whatever. We can we can try to talk to you about it. But at any rate, thanks for listening.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah. Have a great day. Bye.